0: My name is Russ Benedict, and I'm a biology professor at Central College and a prairie lover, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast.
1: I'm Doug Duren, a landowner, trying to be a conservationist.
2: I'm Tabitha Panis, president of the Iowa Prairie Network. I'm Ryan Callahan, director of conservation at Meat Eater. Angela from X and Root Homestead. Chris
3: Helzer, the Nebraska director of science for the Nature Conservancy. I'm Judd McCullum from Working Class Bowhunter. I'm Taylor Keene, founder of Sacred Seed. I'm Ryan Bryson of Bryson Wildlife. This is Luke Fritch. This is Jay- James Holtz, Joy Van Winegarden, Sam Sobol, Phil Ebert, Julie Meechan, and you are listening to
1: the Prairie Farm, the Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm,
3: Prairie Farm, Prairie Farm podcast.
1: Prairie
2: Farm podcast. Welcome to the Prairie Farm podcast.
3: Well, we have a very exciting guest with us today. But before we get into that, if you are listening to this podcast for the first time and you did not come here from our prehistoric prairie docu series. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that docuseries, maybe even before you finish this episode, because it is incredible, and it has a lot of our guests in it, and uh, Kent has done a great job putting it together, but if you have listened to that, and you want more of our guests, then this is the place to be. Kent? Wow, that was really
2: good, Nick. You know, when I asked you to do that right before we recorded, I knew you'd wing something really
3: well, but that... That's an A plus. That was that was very good. That's how I finished high school, winging some A pluses, <laughs> minus the A pluses.
2: Not supposed to say that. One of your parents is in the room. Yeah. Now. <laughs> but no, we are very privileged today. We are here, very close to our home turf. Um, we are just uh, south of the Hoxie Farm, little south west of there, near uh, actually where Nick lives, but I won't uh, give any more details there (laughs) because Nick doesn't need anybody showing up at his house.
3: You will not see my house and be like, that's a house I want to be at.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we are here with Dr. Russ Benedict of Central College, and uh, uh, Dr. Benedict was kind enough to um, help us with the docuseries that Nick just advertised, the Prehistoric Prairie docuseries. Uh, But before we get into that, and before we uh, start nerding out on prairie here, uh, I want to tell how I first met uh, Dr. Benedict. Uh, This would have been back in the fall of 21, back when I was uh, still teaching, and I was enjoying a weekend opportunity to get out and do a little uh, deer hunting, and uh, just to kind of keep my clothes scent free and and everything as best as possible. Uh, so that you don't get detected while you're hunting. I was hanging my clothes up on the uh, clothesline in, like, November, which, uh, unless you're a deer hunter, that's just insanity. (laughs) At least here in Iowa, right? And I look out, and I see there's these people kind of walking around the edge of my uh, family's field. And I'm like, oh, no, we got trespassers again. I just dealt with trespassers uh, uh, the hunting season before, and I had already had a run in. That fall with another one and so i was like well i better go see what's going on and so uh i hopped in uh, my truck drove uh down the road and i was very relieved to see it was just a bunch of college students doing some uh some trapping surveys uh for to kind of you know get an idea the population of small mammals in the area and uh I met Dr. Benedict that time, and I was like, man, that is a good professor right there. That's some good That's some good lab work. That's practical, real-life experience. And I actually had a, a biology prof who was kind of the same, you know, had the same approach. Uh, he was more of a fisheries background, so we did a lot of river surveys and, and things like that. But that hands-on experience told me right away, we have a, we are represented well here locally by uh, the biology department and Dr. Benedict working there. So Dr. Benedict, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to uh, lend us some expertise on prairies.
0: Yeah, well, thank you very much for, for inviting me. And and the, the day that we were out there, that was part of my mammology class. And uh, we were yeah just, just running a bunch of live traps to try and figure out who's there. Um, and it kind of amazes me how often um, people just don't even know the critters that live right in their backyards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's what, that's what that was all about. Just let's go out and see five or six species of mice and voles and shrews. And, and, uh, and, and it's just amazing stuff that lives around here.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, while I was driving away after we met, I thought, you know, what a shame it is that it's limited to just this narrow, slope. Now, part of that is legality. You know, you have that that ditch easement you, anyone's allowed to be on. Uh, but also, uh, if you went, you know, five feet south of where you were working, it was at that time in the year pretty much a wasteland. <laughs> it was all corn uh, stubble. Yep, mm-hmm. corn stubble or bean stubble, whatever it was at that time. And uh, so, your survey uh, was was limited to just that narrow strip of, of ditch. And, you know, thinking back 200 years ago, the amount of life that would have been represented in that section, you know, per, you know, if you went by a per acre biomass, uh, it's changed a lot. And, And that's why we're here today. We're, 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 you know, I like to say conservation when you're in the business of conservation, you're always fighting from your back but at the same time another guy that's here with us today who's not often on the podcast but has been on there before our founder and uh uh nick and my boss right <laughs> uh mr carol hoxbergen and nick's dad that's right he, he nick's dad he taught me uh the importance of remaining optimistic and so uh i think we're, we're all a bunch of optimists here too when it comes to prayer we know What That change needs to happen, but we believe it can happen, too. We're actually going to get to a quote I found on the central uh, website of yours uh, that I like a lot. Uh, That's kind of how we'll end this interview. But, uh, no, so uh, how did you get into
0: prairie? Like, where did that interest begin for you? Well, I had a a sixth-grade teacher. So I was uh, living in the Omaha area, and my sixth-grade teacher was passionate about birds and and that kind of bled over to me pretty quickly i really started kind of fell in love with birds very quickly um and she had suggested that you know as soon as you can convince your parents you have to head out to central nebraska this region called the sand hills um and here's the birds you want to go there to see and and so i convinced my mom and dad to take me out there and and bam just like that i mean now you're you're in about 27,000 square mm. miles of of some of the most intact Incredible. prairie on on earth and and uh yes i noticed the birds but i noticed everything else and and pretty much from that point on um anytime i would have free time um i would head out to the that vicinity and then further west in nebraska up in the panhandle where you get out into the short grass prairie world um, so so yeah, and then I then as soon as I had kids, I would take them out there and immerse them in that. It's that it's that huge prairie landscape, um, and I love to take students out there today. One of the, one of the greatest things about it is I don't have to plan anything. I just mm. go out there and just know if we go and walk a mile, we're going to see ten thousand things, and I don't yep. have to do anything because it's because mm. it is such a diverse um, ecosystem. So so essentially, I think if you immerse yourself in a huge natural ecosystem, you're probably going to fall in love and and that's certainly what happened to me
3: so what what so you said that you fell in love when you were first there what what stuck out to you? I mean, you, you were young. You weren't thinking, hey, there's 200 species out here. There's a biodiversity that you don't see in the Midwest. I mean, you know, you're probably not thinking that. What were you thinking when you were out there?
0: Well, I think the, the, the one image that really pops into my head, and it's an image I've seen a thousand times in other places, but it was a Western meadowlark, um, a mm. bird that is um, fairly common. And uh, there's both Eastern and Western meadowlarks, and they're both quite common, but they're both declining pretty fast across the Midwest. Um, but the numbers of them out there is just mind-boggling, and they'll sit right there on the fence lines. Um, and so it was, I, I think it was actually, I, I can't literally say the moment that I fell in love with prairie. There is no sure. such thing. But one of the memories that just screams in my head was it's like June 2nd, um, and the whole world for miles around me is exploding with the sound of, of western meadowlarks. Mm. And, and if you know their sound, and if you can magnify that by a thousand birds, um, thats it's just a phenomenal experience
3: that's cool yeah. are they still hanging out out there
0: they are they are yeah it's, since that area is essentially it's it's sand dunes that have been stabilized by prairie grasses if you plow it it all blows away um and so because of that it is mm. still basically one of the biggest intact grasslands on earth mm. so yeah you still have strong populations of of uh, eastern and western meadow larks out there some of the other birds that are still hanging on there are starting to decline there also but but still good populations of you know prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse things along those lines
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and you just named a couple of species there that uh, would have been common, probably right where we're s- yeah. s- sitting right now, but totally gone. Right. And, uh, yeah, the, just the power of that intact landscape. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, we're already kind of hitting this, uh, but, I, you know, I, I kind of want to start with a, a big question here. Why is prairie important? So I think people can probably see when they meet someone like, any of us four here thinking, about, okay, I see why Prairie means a lot to Carol or Prairie means a lot to Dr. Benedict or, or, you know, Nick or myself. Why does it matter to me? Why, why should I care what they care about? You know, maybe that's just their hobby. My hobby is, uh, fixing up cars or my hobby is watching sports. You know, why, why is Prairie important enough that everyone should, should even care?
0: It's a a deep question. I didn't expect deep (laughs) questions on this thing. (laughs) Um, I I think that there's probably a couple of pieces to that. Um, It is home to... We don't really know the answer, but certainly thousands of species sure. per per square mile. Um, by the time you add in the the bacteria and the fungi and the roundworms and everything down in the soil, which we now know are giantly important, mm-hmm. um, you know, you may be looking at tens of thousands of species per yeah. per square mile. Um, so it's home to lots and lots of critters, um, many of which are declining in numbers. Um, it one of the challenges with it is it's not the most user friendly of all all ecosystems. You know, hmm. if you get out. And explore a prairie in the middle of July. Um, the the ticks and the chiggers are gonna gonna join <laughs> you. The the blackberry bushes are gonna scratch away at you. You know it's 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 a challenging place to explore. Yeah. Um. But nonetheless, if you get in there, especially if you get in, uh, in my mind, over and over again throughout the day or throughout the year, and see the changes throughout the year, um, you'll you will see it's a pretty amazing ecosystem. But it's it's a little more than that. It's part of the history of of the whole center of the United States. Um, you know, extending back for probably, you know, we had the first really large grasslands in the, in the middle of the United States, probably seven to 10 million years ago. Um, those early grasslands, as I think you'll hear from some of your other guests were home to, to hundreds of species of big mammals, you know, um, horses and camels and rhinos and elephants. I mean, things we don't think of yeah. today, yeah. they absolutely rivaled the the scenes that you see in Africa today. So we had that right here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and parts of those giant grasslands were right here in iowa as well um is kind of this interesting area i kind of think of it as like a uh, it's right in the center of the teeter-totter um when the when the the climate swings more towards the the hot dry ends then iowa becomes all prairie when the climate swings more towards the cool wet periods the the forests really advance and Hmm. the prairies just kind of shrink back to smaller patches really interesting Yeah, um, but yeah. So, so essentially, the 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 history of the Midwest is so intertwined with with prairie that in my mind, you can't really live in Iowa or Nebraska or Illinois or you know any of those states without understanding at least a little bit of the history of the place. And then on top of that, if, if you're really kind of a, you know, a money-motivated person, um, the soils that we have here were largely driven by two things, glaciers um, and prairie. And that mm. combination of things created some of the, the greatest soils on earth. Um, so, so I think there's a number of reasons why, why we should care about prairie.
2: Yeah, yeah, excellent. Um, you know, Carol, you've worked in prairie for almost your whole life. You, Pretty well. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was that you know that passion that brought you into the business back in the eighties, the and if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to our episode one yet you can hear the whole story on how carol got into it what was it that you noticed that when you first noticed the need for prairie
1: well i kind of got in gradually slowly you know i fell in love with one species you know and and then i found a prairie remnant on the farm and and it started blossoming after that, and there's so many things to go along with you know just Indian grass or big blue. There's so many things in our ecosystem that it all comes together and start to realize that was important to me and uh, and to our environment and and it just kind of blossomed of that And you know, there's been so many surprises to me for getting into the prairie business, you know uh, how effects are you know our environment and you know mm. when initially it wasn't really my goal you know it was just kind of you know make a habitat for a pheasant or something to go hunting with a buddy of mine yeah right and then all these things come along that just kind of fell mm. into place and
2: yeah that's that's a powerful realization there you you, you don't just hear what is supposed to happen you're seeing it happen well
1: yeah you get an observant and you start seeing what effects you know those those species have and you know and how they all work together and and. It just is fascinating. It's yeah, interest
0: grows there. Right? And if you get into some of those remnants, to me, the beauty of a remnant is you're, you know, you're looking. Earlier, you guys mentioned something about sky blue aster. You see a sky blue aster growing there, and and if you think about it, uh, the the ancestors of that thing may have grown in that exact spot, you know, eighty thousand years ago. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they may have yeah. you know seen the very first humans arriving fifteen thousand years ago. Yeah. So so that kind of sense of history again is amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's that's an interesting point for sure and that's something i've i've spent a lot of time since i've gotten to know uh carol and and uh nicholas and and working at hoxie is i wonder how long those those uh big blue roots were you know in that spot on our farm where the the remnant is at you know how how long were were those plants growing there before carol found them and and they came back and and uh there is that time stamp aspect to uh to prairie as well uh as we look towards the future so your your answers to that question on why prairie is important play into this do you see prairie becoming uh playing a role a bigger role as we look towards the future of life here on earth and how we as humans
0: play into that so there's um So I have to try and decide how to answer this. Do I answer this with with my pessimist side of me or do I answer more with the optimist side of me? And I'll probably do a little bit of both. Um, But uh, I think one of the the interesting aspects, there's a um, a place down in Salina, Kansas called the Land Institute. Um, Hmm. And the Land Institute is um, basically... a couple of old hippies who, who came up with these fascinating ideas. Um, and they'll, they'll call themselves that too. So I don't, I don't feel bad saying that. Um, but their idea was to come up with a new way of agriculture, um, an agriculture that uses, um, perennial plants rather than annual plants and, a, and an agriculture that's based at least partially on native plants. And so they're looking at a variety of native plants to try and figure out, are there, are there ways we could use this species, um, um, in an agricultural setting? And so one of the things they're looking at right now is rosinweed. Um, hmm. if you know, if you know, you know rosinweed, it's got these great big seeds that look kind of like a big flake of, of oatmeal. Um, and they're trying to raise rosinweed that has a higher oil content, thinking that at some point it might rival um, soybeans in terms of being wow. able to produce oil. Um, but, you know, the thing that it can do that, that soybeans can't do is it can live in a, in a given spot for 30, 40 years. You don't have to replant sure. it over and over again. Um, so so I think the potential is there. Um, nobody's really looked at, at our native plants to try and think about what kind of role could they play directly in our lives. Um, we know that Native Americans use them widely for, for a whole bunch of different medicinal uses. Sure. Yeah. Um, so are there potential medicinal uses? So so from that kind of perspective, I think there's the possibility of, of prairie playing kind of a direct role in human lives. Um, I'm also a firm believer that human health is tied to remaining connected to nature. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we need prairie to, to keep in touch with what, this part of the world was to reconnect ourselves to, to nature in this area. Um, yeah, I don't know about you, but when I if I go three, four weeks where I've just been stuck inside and I can't get outside and do stuff, I can feel that. I need oh, yeah. that connection. Definitely. Um, and I think... Somebody who lives in the middle of Chicago has that need too. They may mm-hmm. not know it, but I think they I think they have that, and so I think I think nature has that potential for us. You know that that role of reconnecting people and helping our our mental health. Um, so I think it it plays those roles um, from a climate standpoint. Um, yeah. Prairies are very good at storing carbon in the soil. Yes, um, and so so there's some thought. There's not a lot of research into this, but there's some thought that really diverse prairies might um, out on farms, um, in unfarmable places in the agricultural landscape, that might be a way for, for farmers to be earning additional money by storing, storing carbon for industry X, you know, industry Mm -hmm. X has to offset the carbon they produce Mm -hmm. so they can pay a farmer to, to plant prairies and, and prairies store a lot of carbon. So I think there's the potential for it to, to help us solve problems like that. Um, the pessimist in me is is really, really worried. Um, you know, there's so little prairie left. Um, and the prairie is one of the, the phrase is, one of the most heavily fragmented landscapes. Um, so we've lost so much prairie that the remaining patches are small and isolated from each other. Mm. And because of that, they face a whole host of problems. Um, and so in essence, um, a little isolated, never plowed prairie is a spectacular place. They're super valuable, but they're not actually as valuable as they appear because they face so many problems because they are small and isolated. Um, So if you watch remnants over time, their genetic diversity decreases um, within the plants over time. Um, And in fact, the number of species in them tends to shrink over time. Um, So I'm not, again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the remnants aren't valuable. They're incredibly valuable, but they're not the same as if we had, you know, 50% of the landscape still in prairie so that individual organisms could flow back and forth across there. You know, an individual patch in that point would be a lot more vibrant, lots more species. All the species would be more healthy so so the landscape is so heavily fragmented that prairies are in real trouble um, and when you then tack climate change on top of that um, you've got a real problem um, yeah there, there's real concern about you know about giant extinction rates out here in the midwest um, organisms essentially at this time of of history are trying to shift north trying to more or less stay in their climate as the climate yeah. gets warmer but they can't do that out here in these heavily fragmented landscapes because mm. you know the seeds are just going to rain out into a cornfield and they're going to get plowed under. So, so the mm-hmm. the less mobile organisms really can't move as the climate changes, and so the That's the answer point. unfortunately is going to be extinction for a lot of those. So, so know- so there's there's reason to just real short. There's reason for for optimism and reason for real concern too. Yeah.
3: Do you know Chris Helzer? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he was talking about something similar and I had no idea what he was talking about. And 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 uh I think I might have missed something while he was talking because he is pretty articulate but you explained it very well that he was saying that we need to connect prairies. Mm-hmm. That's like a big need and and um uh, I didn't realize why until now. And I mean it makes a lot of sense. I mean I understand the the genetic diversity and things like that as um as plants kind of uh they're able Both
2: to cross pollinate. You know, yeah.
3: From... Yeah. And and so it's very interesting that, uh, that you're bringing it up because it seems to be it's part of the broader discussion at this point. Do you see any practical, maybe not fixes, but solutions? Because you've got landowners and you've got to work with the landowners. And we had another gentleman, um, Ted Cook, who was very interesting. And his whole thing was, hey, we need to make conservation reasonable for landowners. Mm-hmm. It's got to make sense for them because it's their livelihood. Um, so you're not just going to, you know, you don't want to just pull the rug out from some people, but then it is super important. So we better do something. So you have any uh, like uh, maybe long term solutions? I know you'd mentioned the one about uh, larger manufacturing companies maybe having to pay farmers to designate land for prairie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else
0: like that? Because those are very interesting. So so it's it's kind of interesting. Some parts of the of the, the Midwest and out into the Great Plains this idea of fragmentation is not as big of a problem because there are still enough patches that if you were a, a regal fritillary butterfly, an organism that's really tied only to, to prairies, you could skip across the landscape, you know, bouncing from one, from one prairie patch to the next. Um, and so central Nebraska is, is like that. Um, there's more ribbons of connection. Um, sure. Parts of Minnesota, A, there's more remnants on the, on the landscape. But B, the state of Minnesota has become like super active in restoring prairies and really kind of mapping out where they're going to restore the prairies to create these corridors. Mm. Um, and so the, so the corridors, strategic. A, allow genetic exchange. You know, something like um, white wild indigo. Um, if you find a white wild indigo in this little remnant patch over here, it's going to be genetically different from the white wild indigo that's 10 miles away. Um, Not hugely different, but a little bit different. And both of them are going to kind of be reduced in genetic diversity. If you can create a series of corridors um, between them that allow bumblebees to bounce from one white wild indigo to the next, you're creating Mm -hmm. gene flow across there Mm -hmm. um, and kind of improving the health of everyone. And on top of that, now allowing um, those organisms to move as the climate changes. Creating these corridors creates these corridors for movement. But now to get to your, your question... How do we do it? Um, and that's, that's the challenge, you know, especially when you've got Iowa um, and, and Illinois and parts of, of eastern Nebraska where there's so little prairie left. So how do we convince people to plant prairie? Um, I think there's a couple of possible answers. I think that we, we work with individual landowners and we try and show here are some benefits. Um, you know, So potentially, prairies might provide a whole bunch of what we call natural predators. Um, these are little insects um, that are going to move out into their soybean fields and eat some of the, the, pra- the, the insects that are trying to eat the beans. Um, so there's some hints that, that insects can leave a prairie and move into the surrounding crop fields and actually be beneficial there. Um, there's some hints that, that even though soybeans can, can self-pollinate, there's actually pretty good evidence that they they grow more seeds if they are in fact pollinated by mm. by some sort of a bee well prairies That's are loaded with native bees yeah. um, so their um, prairies are pretty good um, pretty darn good in fact at slowing down the flow of phosphorus um, so as you add a, a fertilizer out on onto a field the phosphorus um, if you t- add too much phosphorus fertilizer it will run across the surface attached to, to soil particles and it'll dump right into a stream, and that creates mm. all of these, these problems that we see. Well, prairie strips planted along streams can essentially intercept that. Mm. Um, prairie strips can also, to some extent, probably not quite as well, but can to some extent um, capture the nitrogen that's flowing in the groundwater underground and also catch some of that before it goes into the streams. Wow. So, So it looks like there are probably enough benefits out on a farm that... If we can convince folks that, hey, try and plant diverse prairies in those unfarmable places, a lot of times right now those unfarmable places are planted with one species of European grass, smooth brome, grows really (laughs) easily, dirt cheap seeds, um, every reason to plant it. But maybe if we plant prairies in those places instead, we can now create some of these stepping stones yeah. And then the other real logical one that's out there are roadsides. Um, yeah. If we yep. could get every single county, every single state to convert yeah. roadsides into, into prairies, there's, there's a lot of corridors yeah. right there. The University of Northern Iowa has a really cool program.
3: They work with the DOT, and then I know the DOT has has their programs and, and the fun thing about the U and I is their bid always has so many different species on it. So they've got so much diversity and they're always asking what zones are things coming in from. And our good friend, uh, Laura Walters from up there. She is very interesting. We really like chatting with her, but what is fascinating, what you were talking about is these prairie highways, right? Cause humans thousands of years ago, we're, we're separated, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, we're separated in these little pods of areas. Right. And then we, we grew, we developed as a species and we built highways. And then we just took over everything. And now we're kind of, you know, the, the butterfly highway that people have talked about building. And then, and now you're talking about building genetic diversity highways for prairies. I think that is so cool. That is really fascinating.
1: Part of, part of the problem is to convince farmers, you know, uh, not to mow these road ditches. Yeah, yeah. You know, today's farmers are, you know... Corn and beans and then where they used to be diversified and raised livestock and they would get the corn crop in and then they would take care of the livestock. And today they, you know, as soon as they get the beans in, they're out there mowing every road ditch and yep. knocking down every tree. Yep. And so we got to convince them, you know, to stop that. Yeah, let it stand. Let it stand, but that, you know, that's hard to change that concept that they have, the mentality. And another thing is, uh, get more of these filter strips on these hillsides, breaks in the, on the hills to slow the runoffs, mm-hmm. and make that connection, you know. But then again, it convince the farmer, you know, that they're on GPS and you know they want to spray right up and down them hills, and they're not going to mm-hmm. stop that sprayer for a filter strip. Right. Right. You know, it's yep. the biggest problem is I guess uh, a lot of these farmers are are not owner operators they're just operators Yep. and they're in there to come in there and get it farm as fast as they can and you know and by farming you know straight up and down the hill with spraying of yep. gps and you know they don't want to deal with those kind of issues so yep. we need to give them incentives or you know to leave those filter strips in and and that's where you know a, an owner operator would would be more concerned about his soil and and you know and the environment around his farm and be a little more that's
2: what
3: ken's saying all the time yeah connected to the land
2: yeah yeah i think what carol said there is that's that's that is ground level step one if we're going to see vast change happen is you got to have you have to have that person that is connected to the ground and the small, a small farm model is something we need to return to, which kind of goes back to what we were talking about, I think, right before we started recording. Um, the importance of growing locally sourced seed, well, that local model is, you know, from a seed economy is good, but also from just an economy standpoint is good. You know, our nation's economy, you know, when you support locally raised produce, locally raised meat, uh, you support a small farm model and um, we've talked so many times in previous episodes that when you're in the conservation business value is is more than just dollars Mm -hmm. Um, dollars only make up part of the picture Uh, value can be seen in so many other ways and probably the easiest way to break that down that we say all the time is air soil and water quality and uh, people that live close to the land they value all those things everything Carol just mentioned ties directly into those three things and uh, so I think I think that that's a critically important part of this too is is developing that sense of value for for folks as well and then rewarding them uh, through incentives through government programs when uh, they're willing to to, uh, get on board
3: but then how are our corporate farms going to make their tens of millions of dollars every year? They're going to come on the Prairie Farm podcast. That's <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> oh, I'm getting paid tens of millions of dollars. <laughs> no, I didn't
0: know
2: that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's – and, and uh, uh, I guess you could say companies are only as rich as people are willing to give them money. And, uh, again, it goes back to – right the now, the right now they get
1: paid on how much they produce you know it's not a, a good job they did farming that piece It gets yep. paid on you know how many bushels you know yep they get paid you know on subsidies with you know mm-hmm. it's not on their their work of conservation how they farm they reward them you know produce more bushels and you know yep and so they're not interested really to to put filter strips in or breaks through their farms just a yep. slow runoff. But well, and of course the other
0: challenge is it's not cheap. You, know, no. you can plant an acre of smooth brome for for pennies, not literally oh, yeah. pennies, but not much. And but to plant you know, a really diverse prairie, that's that's mm-hmm. expensive. So so yeah. that you have to be able to show that the benefits outweigh those costs. Well, I know. think
1: the taxpayers don't mind paying for uh, subsidies for farmers to do those kind of practices. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than subsidize a big farmer on how many bushels he can grow, you know. Yep. And, you know. Yeah, change all, change the targets for those. Really, subsidies. and all it does is increases them to get bigger and bigger, you know, produce more and more where if they would just slow down, do a little better job with a, you know, on what land they have and be rewarded through some conservation incentives. Yep.
3: Well, the problem is uh, most people don't know. You know, you don't have people oh, – Picket, uh picketing the the white house saying like hey make sure that the farmers are, are are planting more prairie and that's kind of what we're doing here is not to beat up anybody but just let people know like there's a problem there are solutions we might have a few of them but there are others out there and let's let's be aware of this problem so
2: yeah no i think i think all that is is a, an ingredient in deciphering what the the answers are and we'll get to uh, dr benedict's quote because i think it's it, uh, it addresses all of this Yeah, uh, sorry, Ken. we keep but devolving no, your no no your no, podcast, no it's good it's good it's good. It's, good it's good
3: a passionate <laughs>
2: but uh so we know why we have we have to value prayer we understand that we understand its importance on a global scale really i think um probably the biggest issue you mentioned there that's on the forefront of everyone's mind is how prairie helps with the problem of climate change, but let's go back to when prairies first showed up. You kind of talked about this a little bit. You talked about how Iowa is the center of the teeter totter here, and uh, the conditions uh, from you know a climate standpoint certainly determine how Iowa is going to look. So, when did prairies first start
0: showing up in Iowa? So that's a um I can answer that question a little bit more broadly because I don't know literally the answer right here in Iowa. Sure. Um, but I know kind of from a general standpoint. Yeah, yeah, Midwest, um, the, the, Midwest the, whole, yeah, yeah. the prairie so, states. So individual grasses started showing up probably 30, 40 million years ago, mm. um, which is it's kind of hard to imagine that length of time but 30 40 million years ago in the grand scheme of of nature is is a relatively recent arrival it's more recent than the dinosaurs right oh yeah definitely now dinosaurs yeah. went um, winked out at about 65 million years ago um, except for those that still hang on you know birds are, are descendants of dinosaurs yeah. um, but the the big ones that we think of yeah 65 million years ago so so this arrival of, of grasses was a bit after that um, then probably in that seven to ten million years ago range is when we started having really big widespread grasslands. I, my guess is that's probably the answer to here in Iowa. I'm going to bet somewhere in that seven to 10 million year, mm. year ago range, we had widespread grasses. Um, but then climate was kind of going crazy. Um, and so the species that were present kind of shifted all over the place, um, and different species arrived, other species went extinct. Sure. Um, so the the prairies that we think of um, the you know kind of the specific assembly of plants that we call tall grass prairie, that's a much more recent thing. Um, but I want to I want to comment a little tiny bit about kind of this this incredible teeter totter that we refer to as the Pleistocene, the mm-hmm. the Ice Age. Yeah. Um, so that started about 2.2 million years ago, and and during that time, um, at at least seven different times, glaciers formed in Canada, um, and then they chugged their way south, um, and sometimes they reached all the way to Iowa. Most of the time they did, um, but other times they they wouldn't reach quite all the way to Iowa. So hmm. so these seven different glacial episodes. Um, and so what that means is basically at least seven times during the last 2.2 million years, we've had really cool and moist conditions for, you know, 100,000 years, hmm. 150,000 years in the Midwest. And then those were separated by another 80 to 90,000 years of pretty hot, dry conditions. So you just had this incredible teeter totter going on for the last, the last 2.2 million years. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm, what I'm saying is that. You know, during the cool, wet times, the, some of the forests from our north spread down here. Sometimes we'd be hmm. mostly oak hickory forests. Other times we would have a whole bunch of spruce and fir um, from, from what is currently northern Minnesota. Those would be present here. Hmm. There were times when we'd have tundra here. You know, wow. you, don't, you, you have to go a thousand miles to our north to find yeah. tundra, yep. um, but it was here. Um, and then incredible. other times it would be hot and dry and we'd have widespread prairies. Um, so, so, just an incredible change over um, a very recent time span. Um, so, literally, the thought then is that our current tallgrass prairie probably arrived somewhere in the vicinity of seventy, eighty thousand 80,000 years ago or so. Um, and then pretty widely spread Iowa probably fifteen to 20,000 years ago. That was right about the end of the last glacial episode. Okay. Um, so, what that means, though, is that our current tall grass prairie is an incredibly young ecosystem. Um, and what's also really fascinating to think about is humans arrived right in that same window, that 15 to 20,000 years ago range. Um, they came across the what we call the Bering Land Bridge. They came from Russia across to Alaska and then fairly quickly spread out across North America. Um, so essentially, humans may have been here in the in the Midwest for as long as the tall grass prairie as we know it has mm-hmm. been.
3: You know, uh, between what's considered like the big five and prairie uh, market industry, you've got switchgrass, cytos Grama, little blue stem, big blue stem, and Indian grass. Do you know which one happens to be the oldest, or
0: if any of them stand out where they all kind of evolved within the same? Yeah, I'm afraid that's a that's a question I don't know the answer <laughs> to. I wish I knew that one. <laughs> yeah. What what I can tell you is is where they came from, how they ended up as part of the, the mm. tall grass prairie is kind of an interesting story. Yeah. Um, Indian grass and big blue stem are really kind of, and this this might be heresy to say, but they're kind of eastern plants. Um, they were oh. probably found in some of these grassland openings in the forests of the east. Um, they spread west out this way and kind of found a home out here in Tallgrass Prairie. So so the, the Tallgrass Prairie... Is that
2: most likely from animal transplant, getting caught in... Buffalo fur or birds, you know, disseminating right, seeds? Right, right.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, I mean, they certainly do get stuck in the in the in the fur of bison and things along those lines. Um, so that's, I think that's certainly possible. But it may have also been, um, you know, the, the as I say this, you know, they were out east and then they moved west. We kind of imagine these grasses getting up and sprinting across the landscape. <laughs> you know, they're moving a mile sure, um, every yeah. 10 years because of just seeds flowing in the wind. Sure. Um, so it might have also been a much slower just move, just movement slow like Slow advancement. Yeah. But essentially, one of the phrases you'll hear about tall grass prairie is that many of the species were borrowed from surrounding ecosystems. Um, And Mm. so, so, yeah, quite a few of our species actually probably originated elsewhere and then later colonized tall grass prairies. Yeah. That was
3: fascinating. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's really interesting to because you you know you wonder that you it's easy to picture the you know the glaciers providing the the good soil and it's easy to picture you know drying out as the climate changes but then where does that seed bed come mm-hmm. from you know that 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 stock for so much you know so many miles and miles of prairie but yeah that's 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 fascinating to to hear that so a changing landscape for sure. And uh, it's, it's, you know, humans now have become the changing force more so than glaciers and more so than, than uh, wind and, and uh, whatever other changes. Um, but if we had just, you know, chosen, let's say, you know, when uh, uh, European settlers moved west from the east coast of our country, of our continent really um if they had chosen to maybe live a nomadic lifestyle like a lot of the plains tribes uh of indigenous people were doing and we followed you know bison and elk around and and did that kind of thing would you expect these prairies would still you know just be pretty much the same way today as uh, if we hadn't adopted that agricultural base yeah. to our society
0: yeah, mostly um I I do think, um, so, so a number of species disappeared fairly early, um, as the, the European settlers arrived, not because of habitat conversion, but because we just hunted them out. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, there was a wolf here. Um, that wolf is now completely extinct, um, called the prairie wolf. Um, you know, there was, there was a number of other, a couple of bird species, Eskimo curlews were, were here and those were just hunted to extinction. Mm. Um, and, and so... If the population of these early settlers had gotten big enough, we probably still would have done that. So we probably still would sure. have taken out a What's couple of species here and there. But no, I think other than that, I can imagine the, the prairie landscape still being mostly prairie. You know, the guess is ballpark 1830 when those first settlers arrived in, in the Iowa area. You know, the guess is 75, 85% of Iowa was prairie. Um, and, but there was also a lot more of this Oak savanna present, you know, maybe 10 yeah. or 15% of the land was Oak savanna in some way or another. So, um, so it's kind of interesting in a sense that we really don't know exactly what was here. We have a guess, but we don't know exactly what was here. But now I can imagine that if they hadn't adopted the, the agricultural landscape, it more or less would be... Well, but the other the other key is fire. You know, fire mm-hmm. is so so important, and frequent fires um, keep prairies as prairies. Um, the current teeter totter tilt here in Iowa—I'll say that five <laughs> times fast. Um, the current tilt is actually slightly towards trees. Um, So if you don't burn on a regular basis, your prairie turns into, into forests. So if those early humans or early European settlers had said, we don't like this fire anymore, let's just stop it. Then that would have also been the end of the prairies. They would have mostly converted to forest.
3: Hmm. Hmm.
2: That's, that's interesting. So maybe we would see some more trees today than, than, uh, um, you know, were present at that time if, if we Mm -hmm. had allowed for that. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating to consider for sure. So, you know, what were some of those? You named some of those animals. A lot of animals are gone from Iowa today. In fact, if you looked at Iowa, especially for, and, and I mean, you're, you're a biology professor, so you, you probably would like to say, well, what about all the small mammals too? But, <laughs> but it's easy to focus on the the big, you know, charismatic species that can still be found in a lot of other states. Um, I think when you look at Iowa, we, uh, we're known for a few species um, especially from you know a a sportsman's uh, viewpoint but when you look at the diversity of life in our state it lacks compared to a lot of other uh, states or or you know let's get rid of the political boundary side of it just regions of our country can you kind of paint a picture for us what uh, uh, Iowa would have looked like you know, coming out of the, you know, ways after the last ice age, so we don't need to look at Pleistocene megafauna here. But of course, everything that survives that's big and mammalian is a Pleistocene megafauna. But, but, uh, the, you know, some of the the more storied, you know. Things that pioneers would have seen when they first made it to
0: Iowa. What kind of critters mm-hmm. would have been here? Yeah, so so the, the big grazers out on the prairies would have been bison, mm-hmm. um, kind of obviously. Um, we probably didn't have quite as big a numbers here as we would if you would have seen further west, but certainly they were here. Um, the other animal that we don't always associate today with prairies, but definitely are a prairie animal, and that's elk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people... Today, well, I, I saw elk up in the mountains of Colorado, so they must be mountain animals. No, nope, they're, they're grassland animals, is mm. what they are, and they were common here. Um, possibly as common as bison. Um, we also had quite a few mule deer. And mule deer are really more of a prairie deer. Um, you know, mm-hmm. whitetails are really kind of a forest edge animal. But mule deer are, are a wide open prairie animal. Um, Their main predators, we certainly would have had mountain lions here. We would have had, um, if we go back far enough, we would have had this this wolf, this thing called the, the prairie wolf. Um, and it, was, it wasn't its own species. It was what's referred to as a subspecies of the, the wolf that is still alive today. A little bit smaller body but longer legged really designed for running on the open grasslands. Um, so we would have had pretty good numbers of those. They weren't, they weren't able to do anything with an adult bison, but they were certainly picking off the little babies and that kind of stuff along the edges. Um, all you have to do is get a little ways over into Nebraska and you start picking up grizzly bears, but there's no real hint that grizzly bears were Mm. here in, in Iowa. Um, Let's see. Certainly had black bears in pretty good numbers. Um, so, so really nothing. Of, yes, we had more species here, but nothing like really exotic. You have to go back probably more towards the ten to fifteen thousand years ago to start seeing some of these these um, crazier things. You know, yeah. the things that that don't occur here anymore. You know, things like musk ox that today are yeah, found up yeah, in the tundras. Sure. Um, one of my personal favorites are the, the short faced bears, giant short faced bears. Um, they went extinct about 15,000 years ago. And, you know, so the, the body size of a grizzly, but longer legs, and, um, and Different teeth; their teeth were really designed to be just predators. Um, there's, there's even a few of the the anthropologists who are thinking that that humans could not invade North yes. America until that species went extinct. So that's that's pretty terrifying to think about a fast moving bear. I was I was going to ask yeah. you
2: about that. So that's so we we brought that up in a, a previous uh, podcast. I couldn't remember the source where I heard that, but that is a fascinating uh, hypothesis. Yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah, <laughs> a scary one, but yeah, yeah, yeah for
2: sure. Is once they went extinct, then human migration can. yeah that's right that's right (laughs) yeah that's that's pretty cool but so uh you know it's easy to look at that it's easy to see the the things that are that meet the eye immediately the tall prairie grasses the beautiful prairie flowers the large uh mammals the the big grazers you, you mentioned or even large predators um but how would the soil in the prairie states be different at that time than it
0: is today so that well this is the the scientist in me um well the answer to that kent depends on where you're talking about <laughs> um because it, it is really regionally based sure, um sure but and i can answer that kind of kind of pretty quickly so um go to Ames, Iowa and then head a little bit north of Ames, Iowa. You're now in the part of Iowa that's called the Des Moines lobe. Um, so the Des Moines lobe is the part of Iowa that was covered by the most recent glacier. Um, so 15,000 years ago, you know, if you're driving up I-35, 15,000 years ago, you're going to slam into a, you know, a 1,000-foot tall sheet of ice. <laughs> that's um, crazy. So the so the ice was there that recently. Um, and so that soil there is is super recent. Um, mm-hmm. As those glaciers melted back, they dumped a whole bunch of material onto this, onto the soil surface, um, and that material was was picked up in various places in Canada and, and the northern states, um, and so you're you're picking up all these different kinds of rocks. You're banging them together. You're crushing it down into fine fine flour like material, and then the glaciers melt away and just dump all that, mm-hmm. and so that's the the parent material that these these soils are made out of. Um, But here, where we are, um, just between um, Knoxville and Pella, um, the glaciers were last here probably about five hundred thousand years ago, mm. um, and so our glacier, our soils here are not near as rich. Um, there's been time for erosion to occur and rinse a lot of those really good soils down into the streams and down into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so we still have decent soils here, but we don't have those spectacular soils that you see up on the on the Des Moines Lobe. Um, so, so to some extent, what would the, the soils have looked like to the very first um, pioneer settlers? Probably similar, just deeper versions of whatever is there, but whatever is there varies quite a bit across the across the state. The the thought is that you know the prairies now working on top of those those glacial soil materials um, you know, and growing there for 10, 20, 30,000 years. It was that length of time that produced the spectacular soils. Um, so, so by the time the you know the prairie settlers arrived, it was mostly already there. Um, and then unfortunately now we're we're taking it for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And,
2: you know, in a way, we, through through modern agricultural practice, we create new soil, we fertilize, um, either through animal waste or uh, uh, more commonly uh, through, uh, you know, manufactured fertilizers. Um, but we really can't recreate that soil quality to the extent that it was. In a short amount of time, right right
0: so and or. and part of that, I think, is because of the complexity of those soils mm. that were dumped. Um, you know there's there's a thousand different kinds of chemicals there, half of which are decent plant nutrients. Um, so us coming back in and just adding a handful of those you know specific chemicals um, recreate some stuff, but not the not the whole mix.
3: yeah,
2: so we can in short order, take away something that took a very long time right. to gain. Right.
3: Have you ever heard any experts on soil and and, uh, uh, agricultural practices give a timeline of how much longer they think
0: Iowa soils can hold out? No, I don't. I don't think I remember that. You know, you hear a lot about we lose X number of inches or whatever mm-hmm. per year, um, and maybe the the answer to why I haven't specifically heard that is again because it varies so much by mm-hmm. region. You know, again those those soils up in northern Iowa were were pretty darn thick and super rich, but ours here in this southern part of Iowa were a little bit thinner. So maybe because it varies so much, they they don't try and predict. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no i haven't i haven't really heard the answer yeah i not i mean I, I you could start getting really into doom and gloom there, but i was
3: just right. uh, mm-hmm. i was just curious if there was any talk about it but
2: yeah yeah so it's it's an interesting thing to look at this history and and think about the time before man really was influencing the landscape but let's let's now transfer to this <clears throat> settlement time frame uh found a way to get across the uh great uh, eastern uh barrier there the mississippi river and uh it, first of all uh do you have any idea what the mississippi river would have looked like compared to now you know pre lock and dam and right, right. and and uh channelization and everything like that what what would that what would if you were a settler you know sitting there on illinois's eastern shore pointing your wagon west what would you have seen when you looked at yeah. the Mississippi River?
0: Well, interestingly, I think it's more than just the river. It's the whole floodplain. Because mm-hmm. um, those those natural rivers shift side to side so much. Um, sure. You know, over the course, they don't do this like tomorrow. You know, they do this like over the course of hundreds of years. Um, but what that ends up doing is, and essentially, the whole floodplain then was a river at some point, of course, in the last thousand years or so. So you've got all of these... Marshes and wet meadows, um, old river channels um, out there in the floodplains, um, and some of those I can't imagine how you'd get a tractor or, mm. or a, you know a, uh, whatever I'm trying to say here a wagon, uh, a wagon across <laughs> there. Um, those would not have been. I mean, from a wildlife standpoint, they would have been just unbelievable places. You know, yeah. not only mammals there, but you know the ducks moving through. It would have just been an incredible place, mm-hmm. but um, but it would have been challenging to move through. Now, I, I have a hard time kind of really I don't you know my knowledge of like the the Mississippi. River itself is not super good. Um, so I'm just going to imagine that probably lots and lots of separate channels um, mm-hmm. with islands in between. Some of the islands would be older and would have, you know, cottonwood and silver maple stands on them, but other ones would be more weedy. Some of them might have had, had prairie on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to guess maybe a little bit wider version of what we see today with more separated channels. But, again, I'm not an expert on that, so man, that's just my that, guess. that just sounds like a mess to get a, get a yeah, wagon yeah. across, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. my
2: goodness. Oh, that would that would be so stressful. And a lot of times I think we get this picture in our heads of, oh, all they had to do is find a way to build a bridge, you know, mm-hmm. or, or a ferry or something. But, man, that's a lot more challenging
0: done than uh, said. But it does help help to explain why so many of the Native Americans lived on the tall hills. Yeah. A, easier to move around in. But the floodplains themselves were such incredible sources of food that Mm. they were great places to live near. Maybe not in, but near at least.
2: Mm. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Very good point. So uh, however they did it, settlers, European uh, 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 settlers, found a way to start migrating across uh, north america get to the other side and they get into of course illinois indiana those would have been prairie states already that were being transformed um, but once they got you know to the other side they're looking at iowa they're looking at missouri they're looking at uh, nebraska and and kansas and they're looking at a new part of the prairie um, right away they started a homestead right and and uh kind of section out Pieces of the prairie. I think they there was a term, sod busters, or something like that. Right. And and uh, I think I don't know. Maybe this was just down in the uh, kind of Oklahoma, Texas area, Kansas area. The nesters they called them, something right. like that. Right. The homesteaders, mm-hmm. the right. homestead act. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So would, would they have just set plow to? And Carol, you might be able to weigh on on this too mm-hmm. from an agricultural standpoint. Would they just set that steel plow? To these prairie roots and just start digging them up and and putting them into row
1: crops. I mean, was that like the immediate thing? You know,
0: um, from what I understand, no. Well, um,
1: I, it was very tough to bust that, and I think John Deere finally came up with a with the plow,
0: malleable steel plow that would turn it that over. It was what 1890s somewhere yeah. when the plow came out. It was hard to
1: get rid of those big blue stem roots, and it's still hard today. Oh yeah, we've
3: dug them up. (laughs) They're hard. (laughs) We'll have so we have some monolithic fields, right, to be able to harvest some things and and be able to sell them and mix them as as we need to. And uh, if you guys haven't seen some of our YouTube videos where Kent and Ben are actually digging up big blue stem out of the side grama, they spent hours, days. No, a lot but of
1: those work. were just, you know, a couple the, year yeah, old Yeah, those yeah. young plants. Yeah. Yeah. They
0: weren't very well long and established. Yeah, yeah. thousand year old plant. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Thirteen right. foot. You yeah. know, roots. Yeah. Oh. Man. But no. So my my understanding, and and again, I'm not a great historian, but my understanding is that you know a lot of the people who came across were heading west. And their goal was not to stay here. Oh, okay. Um, and and then slightly later waves, I think, um, were the ones who started to settle more. Um, but yeah, early on to try and make a living out of the prairie was really challenging. Um, and so you really see the kind of explosion in um, in the the destruction of the prairies is more like an 1895 through hmm, about 1930 kind of a thing. Yeah. So I think those those early couple of decades. Um, yes, I think you did see. Prairies disappearing, but it was on a much more small scale um, and and a l- whole lot of work involved. Um, but then it rapidly sped up later.
2: That's that's fascinating, especially when you think about why they were coming across the prairie. I'm going to go farm in Oregon. <laughs> right. We're going to grow rocks and uh, <laughs> to leave the best farm ground in the world to to go do so. But of course,
0: early on they didn't recognize right, it was yeah, the right. best farm. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. That's that's that is fascinating. How are you going to kill that
0: big thing? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That, yeah. <laughs> so. So that time frame that 1890s when when folks start settling down they're they're carving out as Carol said with great difficulty they're carving out their their farm and uh, it didn't take long you mentioned the 1930s for there to be some major noticeable effects of doing so of taking out the prairie mm-hmm. and uh, I think uh, the first crops, first main crops, especially if you get down to the southwestern parts of the prairie, um, wheat, small grains. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about just those kinds of effects they would have seen happening right away when, with the removal of prairie?
0: Right. So, so I think early on, so the, there would have been the 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 removal of small patches of prairie here and there wouldn't have been massive. But some of the other changes that were happening simultaneously, the removal of bison was a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't remember uh, the yeah. year there, um, 1870, 1880, somewhere in that range, last bison's sure. gone. Um, bison play enormous roles in prairies. And so mm. as soon as they're gone, the prairies start subtly changing. Um, and so there may have been similar subtle kinds of changes after particular species were, were shoved out. Um, one of the probably really critical times would have been um, and I don't. I, I have a hard time kind of picturing this. the The guess is that every piece of land in Iowa, prior to settlement, when this whole area was prairie or mostly prairie, um, every single piece of land burned every three to five years, hmm. um, at least, maybe every two to four years. Um, and the reason that could happen was because the grasses, the, the grasslands were so huge and in, intact. A prairie fire that started in near council bluffs could sweep all the way across the state. Hmm. At some point, as you start plowing up the prairies in little pieces and little pieces, you interfere with the ability of those, those fires to move. At some point, once you get maybe 50% cropland and 50% prairie, maybe it's more like 60, 40, whatever it is. At some point, there's... Um, few few connections. The number of connections is so low that prairie fires just can't really spread that much yeah. anymore. Um, once that happened, now things change pretty quickly um, because if you don't burn a prairie for just a relatively short amount of time, if there's trees anywhere nearby, those trees are going to explode. You know, and so so that was one of the things that actually happened. Some some of the prairies were plowed under, but other ones simply converted into um, you know initially it would have been black oaks and bur oaks would have spread, but then fairly quickly the waves of of you know american elms and hackberries mm. and all those other things would have been right behind them and and so those prairies actually converted into forests.
2: That's so, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, I never I never thought of that, but that that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, quickly changing landscape shortly after man started lending his hand to the change and that disrupted the fire. Also, I believe you know, something that I've been hearing more um, uh, you know, either in books or or through other podcast interviews, it's believed that Native Americans kind of tended the prairie. They would, uh, you know, they would set the fires to expand the range of the prairie because that was their that was their hunting ground. That if more game had habitat, more game is kind of the theory there. Mm-hmm. I imagine that probably was part of the problem too, right? Is now you've lost the people that were taking care of the prairie. You know, before the settlers got there. Is that is that also part of it too, do you know?
0: Yeah, that that part there's there's actually kind of some argument among the among sure. the scientific community as to there's no doubt that that the the early Native Americans did impact prairies. Um, some folks are kind of taking that all the way to one end and saying that that tall grass prairie wouldn't be here if we didn't have native americans Mm. um other folks are kind of way over on the other side and they're saying oh the the native americans were so few and far between um that they were just little, little tiny you know isolated incidences and that the prairie you know didn't really feel their impact um and so my guess is that the answer as always is probably somewhere, somewhere in the middle, in the middle. Um, there there is little doubt that prairies um, were burned very commonly by Native Americans they do that to clear areas so that they could do some farming um, but you you kind of hinted at it you burn a prairie um, and the prairie greens up very quickly after that and bison love that mm. um, and mule deer love that um, and so within you know if you're if you're burning in in, in spring within just weeks you've now got you're, you're bringing the grazers to you the very grazers you you want to hunt, um, so yeah, they were they were burning to attract the grazers. Hmm. Um, you know, people often picture them, you know, burning to try and shove the all the herds of bison over cliffs and that kind of stuff. That appears to be in like an super, you know, isolated place. Just one or two places here and there where that happened. Sure. most of the time it was just to attract the grazers.
2: Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, base. Oh, go ahead, Nick. How
0: how did fauna
3: large fauna survive fires that are sweeping? 60 miles wide across 200 miles. Mm -hmm. They're probably not outrunning
0: that fire yeah yeah we i sat and watched a a prairie fire out in western nebraska i watched it from like six miles away um and i watched the firefighters working on it and the firefighters would not get out in front of the fire it was moving too fast that's a dangerous place to be Mm. all they did was to work the sides and try and keep the fire from spreading sideways and then they just hoped that at some point the fire was going to burn out Yeah, when the fires are roaring and with the wind you you can't outrun them um but the the fires were rarely a solid wall. Um, there were gaps mm. in that wall. Um, sometimes the gaps are obvious. you know you just went by a little pond, so the area on the on the other side of that pond, not only is that kind of not going to burn, but now you've got like this wedge-shaped area. For It takes the fire a while to kind of kind of wrap around that pond. So there were areas that didn't burn. Um, and so more than likely, the, the bison and, and other big critters just kind of knew, um, okay, run along here until you find a gap in the fire, then roar through. Um, and the other thing that's kind of crazy, and we'll do this sometimes when we're burning out here at the, at the college property, um, the fire will be coming at you, and you'll just kind of look at it, and you'll realize, okay, right there, I can just kind of run and jump right through because it. um, it's a, like a really low part yeah. of the fire. Um, so so you know, they probably did some of that, just running right through the fire. And as long as it wasn't a big roaring mass, they probably could get through.
1: And did they start some backburns right away, see a fire coming, you know, start a fire? Right, and Then the get Native on Americans the do side. that?
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I imagine they would. And, and they also, the Native Americans often would burn the prairies around their villages Prevent so that. that they took all the fuel away. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: that's, yeah, that's mm-hmm. smart, yeah. yeah. I've often wondered, and this is just speculative, if that, you know, so... It's believed mowing a yard is is European in origin. You know, is like a sign of wealth or whatever. But I often wondered too if uh, you know early settlers learned because that was a very real risk if you were mm-hmm. living on the prairie at that time. You know, you could lose everything to a prairie fire. Yeah. Did they start hacking back that prairie grass? You know, and the more the more you cut back, the the better. You, you know, the more it looked like you were uh, doing what, you know working hard to protect what's yours and it, so it was a sign of you know <laughs> having your ducks in a row to have right, your prairie right. cut keep back fire away from me but yeah I, i've often wondered that if that's part of maybe that's why there's such an obsession here with <laughs> well, it's handed down from generation livestock and graze around the, <laughs> yeah, the homestead yeah, yep, mm, yep, mm-hmm. to
1: keep it down yeah
2: yep that's true too yeah have the have the cows and horses close and, home and what's also
0: know. fun to think a little bit about is that um, the prairie fires moved fast enough and still today move fast enough that soil temperatures just an inch below the soil surface those really don't budge mm-hmm. um, and so the That's smaller the critters knew just go underground sure. um, one of the very first burns that i ever took part in there was a a toad hopping around out in front of the fire so i decided i was going to save this toad's life and i i moved it and I immediately hopped right back to where i had grabbed it and so at that point i just kind of put my hands up in the air said sorry buddy I tried the fire moved over it it kind of worked its way down into a little depression that i think it probably knew was there all along the fire went right over it and then it hopped up and took off and i realized well he was a smart one not me (laughs) he knew knew where he was going yeah that's that's
2: that's all interesting to to speculate about and everything but
3: it's also fascinating because that i mean if you're burning a prairie and i don't know how old toads are but it's likely that toad Never been around a fire, and right, he just right. knew what just he was instinctively, doing. Instinctively, yeah, yeah that's a good incredible. point.
2: So all these, you know, all these changes that came: loss of fire, loss of, of uh, the indigenous people, loss of the big grazers that, that created these little micro. Well, I mean, the bison as a keystone species. One of the uh, fascinating thing I heard of heard about once was uh, how bison really made it possible for jackrabbits to be a prairie a native um they you know jackrabbits don't want cover really of any kind that's that's not their adaptation their adaptation is to outrun a threat and so they need you know a manicured drag strip to to get up to top speed to avoid those avian predators or or uh you know coyotes or foxes or whatever else bobcats that would be chasing after maybe even lynx i believe there's some there were lynx on the prairie long ago and uh Um, bison made that possible but then once they were removed you know that changed you know the ecosystem needs the niche for so many other uh species too so i imagine when the bison went
0: a lot of other life left the prairie as well right right there's a there's a, a prairie just outside of Lincoln, Nebraska, that I did quite a bit of quite a bit of research at, um, and there was a, a little mouse that lived there, um, the western uh, western harvest mouse, um, and western harvest mice need places that are heavily grazed. Almost all of the other prairie um, refuges in, in eastern Nebraska, they never graze them at all. And so they get this really dense look to them. There's not a Western harvest mouse in there. Um, so yeah, there are species that need those really heavily grazed areas. And so probably what the bison did, well, not probably, almost certainly, um, was they would graze this particular area but leave other areas around un, mm-hmm. ungrazed. Um, after X amount of time, the ungrazed areas would, burn up, would build up fuel, the fires would sweep through there, so now the bison would move over to the area that they had just left. They had been un- not grazing, and hmm. now they're shifting over there. The area they just were grazing, it now is ungrazed for a while. It builds up fuel. That's it's the next area that becomes prone to fire. So do you this think mosaic that shifted. And, and, and that's
2: and, probably part of Nick's answer there to how the those large grazers avoided the... Flames is yeah. they grazed it mm-hmm. down before yeah. they before mowed their lawns. You. They yeah. did their due diligence. <laughs> oh, don't <laughs> no, get carried away now, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> but
3: do you think that introducing uh, cattle to CRP acres would be beneficial then,
0: ecologically? In in some ways. So so really, the answer to that a little bit depends on how big is your CRP area. If you just have a small area, then it's probably not worth it. But if you've got a good sized area. Then trying to create what we refer to as habitat heterogeneity. Um, you want this part of the prairie to be heavily grazed and, and pretty open for those critters that need that. And then this prairie over here is really long and dense and hasn't been grazed for a while. So to try and create that patchy kind of a, a habitat could be really beneficial. Um, there's a lot of work, especially out to our west, trying to use um, cattle grazing in a way that kind of simulated bison grazing um, to try and reintroduce some of the important things that, that bison did. So that's a, that's a really, really important topic.
3: What, when you say a relatively large area of CRP, what is that to you? Is that like 40, 50 acres? Is that like 150, 200 acres? I,
0: I think you could try and create habitat heterogeneity, you know, the, those patches of different habitats. I'm I'm looking out the window right now because we've got um, a—the place where we're sitting is is Central College property, and we've got a a prairie to our south, which is about 14 acres. And I think an area of 14 acres is too small, but I think by the time you get up into that 30, 40-acre range, that's probably Mm. when you can start to try and create some patches of different size.
3: Yeah, because, Dad, you were
0: saying something about that once, where it'd be good for farmers.
1: Well, I think, you know, for the Conservation Reserve Program, let, you know, farmers allow— well, young farmers to get into cow calfing, you, you know, take that, you know, 100 acres and divide it in thirds and, and uh, have one third for grazing and then one third maybe for haying and the other third for wildlife and habitat and then rotate those yeah, fields. Rotate around. Mm-hmm. And that would get young guys back in, uh, you know, the cow-calf business and – uh you know, the taxpayers, the farmers, land owners are getting paid their annual payments and it'd be good for the prairie. to keep the trees down and and it'd be a good grass fed source of meat too. Mm-hmm. And just get young guys an opportunity to get into into that farm with yeah. no costs really, other than uh, putting in the padlocks and stuff like that and right. bringing water up there and whatever. But Maybe then, we should get some cattle. Yeah, <laughs> so I can remember he was talking earlier Kent uh, about jackrabbits and I was a young boy, this was probably in the 60's uh, we had jackrabbits around the farm and mm. but there was a lot more uh, uh, you know diversified farmers who would raise cattle we had more pasture land mm. and those jackrabbits were always on pasture mm. and that's where they could sprint like you're talking about mm-hmm. but then we you know with the economics of corn beans and and uh yeah, farmers just tore up those pastures, and yeah put them to well, grow crops and, and there goes the jackrabbit,
2: and loss of you know that's that's spot on with what what uh the guy that I was talking to the, the state upland biologist Todd Bogenschutz was who I was talking about this with he he said, you know right around that time, like you're saying is when we lost those those small cereal grains, no you know farmers weren't using horses anymore for any any of the chores so there no need to raise oats and and uh the summer harvest for oats or or even wheat you know gave them that big open flat space but plus also all the grazing from horses and cattle Mm -hmm. gave those open pastures and and uh so there was actually kind of an explosion of the jackrabbit population when farmers started to modify the landscape like that it was almost like you had this hyper graze landscape compared to even what the buffalo were able to do but then when the tractor came along and displaced the horse and when corn became bigger and soybeans came along and displaced oats and wheat right then jackrabbits lost in all on all fronts and we still have them here in iowa but very small fragmented populations and i think uh actually uh um, genetic inbreeding has become a major problem for jackrabbits in, mm. in Iowa because those populations are so fragmented. For whatever reason they're able to hang on in some small isolated areas, but it's just, you know, the same same handful of of
0: jackrabbits, individuals yeah. yeah yeah there's there's two species of jackrabbits white tails and black tails and what we have here in iowa are white tails um and they're more of the straight grassland animal mm. black black tails are a little more um, generalized they can use a variety of open habitats um but white tails the, the thought is they're probably on their way out you know there's 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 so few populations left and the inbreeding is 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 hammering away at them so yeah they're 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 predicted to be extinct before too long mm. black tails will probably hang on a, a bit longer
2: yeah yeah but
0: interestingly one of the places where you'll still see them is up in northern iowa um in some of the 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 uh airports uh, because oh, the airports have big mowed yeah. areas yeah. there's your open grass again that's interesting
2: <laughs> i never thought of that and that's well hopefully they can hang on long enough for some of these right. positive changes which is exactly where you know we can we can uh kind of round all this up you know nick
0: uh, oh, yeah, of, can I add yeah, something yeah, else? Yes. I, kind of going back a little bit, but bison—I just, I just, love bison. Um, <laughs> there's a so Kanza Prairie is is a big um, prairie preserve down in eastern Kansas, um, just outside of Manhattan, Kansas, and there's mm. a huge amount of research done there. Um, it's it's a nature conservancy property, but also helped uh, the the folks at K State helped to manage it, um, and they've done a lot of research on on tall grass prairie and bison. And one of the things that they show, and, and to me this is—I think one of these really cool ironies that you wouldn't really imagine but um they're you know they're a plant-eating animal but yet the presence of bison actually increases the diversity of prairie plants in an area and the reason that happens is um Big blue stem and Indian grass, especially, are just competitive butt kickers. Mm. Um, if you don't have something to keep their numbers down, they will push out lots of the other prairie species. You see that a lot in planted prairies. Um, that you know, over a fifty-year span, a planted prairie will lose diversity as the big blue stem and Indian grass just mm. kick butt. But bison love big blue stem and Indian grass, so they keep they eat it and keep its numbers down low enough that allows the other the other species uh, of plants to survive. And then on top of that, you in pocket gophers who are digging away at the soil Mm -hmm. um and the pocket gophers are creating little you know little mounds of basically waste dirt all the dirt that they've excavated from underground they push that up to the surface so now there's your nice little windows of bare soil for the seeds of these less dominant um plants to to germinate so so it was a a couple of things that actually maintained plant diversity out in in the the the, uh, never plowed prairies but bison played a major role there yeah yeah
2: that's hmm. fascinating. I love hearing those multi that's almost uh not quite the same as but similar to like a trophic cascade type oh, yeah. of situation there. That's mm-hmm. that's uh just fascinating to see all those dots connected from from different parts of the ecosystem and and that's really what we want to get to again, mm-hmm. which is you know this works in so well with what Nick was bringing up with with introducing grazers back to the prairie what Carol talked about with the paddock grazing and and uh um you know just wanting to restore that diversity prairies today even you know as we look here this beautiful prairie that we have here in the central uh, uh prairie area what is the official name for this the carlson
0: right? kuiper field station of central college
2: very good mm-hmm. very good this beautiful prairie here surrounded by uh, a lot of forest as well which is uh, uh nice to see too and um it still doesn't have the diversity, though, of what a prairie would have had right. 500,000 years ago. What's it going to take to start seeing prairies in large expanses um,
0: look like that again? Yeah, yeah. Besides time. <laughs> well, yeah. So, um, yeah, and that's but. So first, I want to back up just a tiny bit because it's super important point to think about, you know, we're getting really good at, at, at planting these, these restored prairies. Um, you know, there's been quite a bit of research as to how to improve things and it's getting better. Um, but we can't recreate the never plowed prairies. Um, and you know the never plowed prairies are so much more complex so many more species not only more species of plants but probably more importantly huge numbers of species of bacteria and fungi down in the soil Mm. that are really creating the conditions that all those plants up above need Mm. um and so so I, I just you just have to be a little bit careful because if you get to that point point where you're like yeah we can we can plow up those those never plowed prairies because we can replant it we we mm. can't replant it mm. that's a good um, point yeah but having said that um, so I think some of the things that will get us to being closer are are super diverse prairie plantings. Um, you know, a lot of times when folks plant prairies, they're planting, you know, eight species, 16 species, things along those lines. Um, looking out this window here to our north, the, the new prairie planting we just put in there is about 103 species. Mm. Um, but there's folks um, around who are, you know, especially some of the folks who work with like Nature Conservancy or some of the other um, nonprofit organizations, they're planting 200 species prairies. That's wow. um, still not, is not what the native uh, yeah. none, never plowed prairies had, but getting closer. But the other thing that there's, there's a quite a bit of research into, how can we restore the bacteria and the fungi mm-hmm. under the soil? Um, especially out in farm fields, because the very things that we're doing out in the farm fields, you know, we're spraying um, to kill fungi. Yeah, yeah and fungicides. It, yeah, and- right. And so we're we're depleting those populations. Um, there's still fungi and bacteria present, but it's not the same ones that are in a prairie. Right. So there's research into is there a way that we can grow those things in captivity so we can sell them commercially for prairie plantings? Um, so I think that's important. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, but but you know, it, you you already told me I can't answer this, but I'm going to answer this anyways. And- <laughs> You know, time is <laughs> yep, the, other the other thing. Time. So if you you know if you've got remnant prairie here and you know a, a ten mile stretch, and I'm just now dreaming, you know, a ten mile stretch of of planted prairie and then another remnant over here. Over time, the a lot of that complexity from the remnant prairies will move out into those mm. those restored prairies. Um, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating to think about. But but then you know a couple hundred years from now, maybe we're maybe we're in a better place.
2: Yeah, and I th- I think that's where. Uh, we can wrap this one up. Uh, is this the quote? This is the quote. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> so uh, if you go on, uh, on to Central College's uh, uh, staff directory, you can find these great little bios about each of the, each staff member there, faculty member, I guess I should say, at uh, um, Central College. And uh, next to Dr. Russ Benedict's name, you'll see uh, uh, this quote here billions of tiny steps have created the enormous problems that face our world and billions of tiny solutions will help to solve them and uh it's our time right now that's the only thing we can really have direct control of but our time right now our moment is now where we can start laying the foundation just as as uh carol has been doing since about 1985 when he started planting his first prairie and his passion for that has grown and dr benedict has done through educating uh thousands of students i'm sure through the years and nick and i do every day as we uh continue to work on on uh our farm at hoxie and uh we do with this podcast we try to spread you know this knowledge out to the to the world of how important it is that we start laying the foundation now so that hundreds of years from now, those things that we look back at and celebrate kind of uh, uh, posthumously, uh, we we uh, can, cel- you know, hopefully our great-great-grandchildren can celebrate as being a part of the landscape again and being the condition that that helps solve the climate problem, that helps solve the... Uh, degradation of our soils and, and water quality and and uh, you know hopefully uh, bring about more balance to uh, our, na- our natural places here uh, all across not just America but the whole world and uh, we can see great healing and I think that starts uh, right here in each and every prairie and uh, can start in your own yard as well we sell uh, pollinator mixes you can go to theprairiefarm.com prairiefarm.com. you can find, even if you are, Dr. Benedict talked about someone who lives in Chicago needs their connection to, to nature as well. You can have that in your own little, uh, might be a tiny yard, might, might be a, uh, maybe a little. Uh, <laughs> one
3: one milkweed plant in a pot <laughs> on your balcony. Right, that's <laughs> right.
2: But you can uh, you can get seed uh, over at theprairiefarm.com and uh, you can uh, put in some uh, backyard pollinator or maybe you are a large landowner farmer, somebody who has control over a large number of acres, uh, really take to heart, especially what Carol was saying about, uh, you know, having value for that a sense of value and pride for that ground that you're working on and working with. And, uh, you know, take your time, look at how you can improve it. And certainly prairie in the right places is a big part of that. And so you can find those there as well. And that all works within our normal closure Conservation happens one yard at a time.